0: You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Peel, and each week you'll hear from artists, entrepreneurs, and others who have found that betting on themselves has made all the difference. A couple years ago, Carl Powers moved from Seattle to Los Angeles to pursue his dream of becoming a comedian. I learned a lot from him about the comedy scene there and how one goes about trying to make a living as a professional. What works great for this podcast in particular is that he's pretty analytical by nature and does a great job of explaining the interconnectedness of all the different threads within comedy and the entertainment industry as a whole. While it's often easy for those of us on the outside to assume that some people are just naturally born with amazing talent and that their success is almost inevitable or the product of pure luck, Carl does a great job of showing how making a living in comedy, like anything else, centers on being proactive and working hard at your craft. In other words, he highlights the often invisible connection between the mega success and the hard work they put in early on. If you've ever wanted to know about how the world of comedy works from the inside, I think you'll really like this conversation. I know I did. Tell me a little bit about what, what you're doing, like why you moved to LA. My
1: name is Carl Powers. I am a comedian. I do stand-up and improv comedy. I've done some sketch comedy as well, but I mainly focus on stand-up and improvised comedy. And so. I live in Los Angeles now. I moved here about two years ago to try to make it as a professional comedian. Uh, it's still a work in progress, so it's still not paying all my bills, but it is a work in progress and something that I am still very passionate about. And so um, from a background of me as a comedian, I can I can tell a little bit of uh, kind of the history there. Is, um, I've always been a big fan of humor, like a big fan of Monty Python growing up, like my dad would always show us the Monty Python movies and the, the television show, and then just kind of general comedy shows, watch a lot of Comedy Central. And then uh, I remember when I was in like fourth or fifth grade, probably fourth grade, I watched uh, this comedian, Ted Alexandro, on Comedy Central he used to have Friday night stand-up where their entire their entire programming in an evening was just stand-up comedy every Friday night. And so I saw that once at my friend's house and I was just blown away by stand-up. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And so pretty much from fourth grade to high school i would watch every friday night stand-up so every friday night if i was home i'd be watching the comedy central pretty much from when they started doing stand-up until the end of the evening i was just kind of obsessed with it and then did it a couple times in seventh and eighth grade at talent shows at school just wrote like two minutes of material like very
0: what was that material like
1: um i can only remember one joke and one joke was uh I was at the grocery store and I saw they had old fashioned candy corn, and I was like, "Is there any other kind of candy corn? Like, is there some sort of new fashioned candy corn that's neon green and tastes good?" And I, that's the only joke I remember. Remember, I also had one about going to the orthodontist and getting your braces tweaked, but I don't remember like the punchline. But it was very
0: seventh grade. Of like, yeah,
1: don't you guys hate it with your braces?
0: You gotta like change the bands or whatever. Yeah, you know your audience.
1: Yeah and it, and it went pretty well like, it, was, it was in front of like 200 something people Just because it was like the whole school was at this talent show and It was uh, a really like uh, An unfair introduction to comedy Because it's like 200 people like, It was on the stage And so we had like a curtain too And a wireless microphone and I was like oh yeah this is just what stand up comedy is like Because all I had ever really seen was uh, Like Comedy Central like Big productions of it And this one talent show and then I didn't really do any comedy in high school, I did some like musicals and stuff, but then once I became uh, a freshman in, at University of Washington, I started doing stand-up comedy. And I uh, did it first at the Comedy Underground, but then I was, started doing it pretty regularly at this comedy club in the University District in Seattle called Giggles. Which is no longer around, but kind of is around it now. It's now called Laughs, but it's undergone like a lot of different changes since I first started.
0: What do you mean? Yeah. It was like okay, back to the, like the yeah. seventh grade thing. What do you mean? Yeah. It was like an unfair introduction to comedy.
1: Well, because it was a really it was a really easy audience because it was just everyone was rooting for everyone to succeed. It was okay. a big audience, and big audiences are easier than smaller audiences just because the the hit rate. You don't need to in order to get 10 people laughing if there's 200 people you only need to get 5% of them to like what you're talking about so if you're doing 50% then you're having 100 people laugh and it sounds wonderful and everyone's kind of laughing then but if you if you're performing in a comedy club for on like a monday night for 11 people or you're doing some show at a cafe or you're doing some show at a black box theater where there's like seven other people and they're all other comedians like if you can get 50 percent of those people to laugh you're only getting four people to laugh so it still seems like a really hard thing and most of comedy especially most of comedy when you're starting out is doing the uh the smaller shows for less interested less engaged people or drunker people or or it's just, just, just audiences that are a lot worse behaved than a bunch of middle school kids which is surprising you'd think like a middle school kid would be like the worst audience but they're really if you're all are also i mean i haven't performed in front of middle schoolers since middle school but um
0: i was gonna say have you thought about going back to that
1: (laughs) um no i do know i have i've had some comedian friends who performed for high schools before like i had some friends who did a show at their high school like at it was like a show for their old high school. So they went back to their old high school and then it was like at an assembly and they were like, yeah, it went okay. Like it was very much just like, yeah, I mean like it like wasn't total disaster and we got paid, but it wasn't like, I I wasn't carried off on anybody's shoulders.
0: How does that typically work for gigs like that? Like if you go to a a late night bar or something or like open mic night or I guess not really open mic, but, Do you get paid for that, or is it just kind of like they're letting you use their stage in exchange for exposure?
1: Um, It really depends on the show and on the producer of the show. So depending on whether or not the producer can get the bar to pay you any money is a good sign. Some people will be running shows where it's just kind of for the exposure. I'd say most often you're getting paid in drink tickets. That's the most common currency. Like you'll get maybe a little bit of cash, but... Like, if you're doing, like, a 10-minute set at, like, a bar show, you can pretty much expect to get, like, $10 cash, maybe, like, $20 cash for, like, the trip over there. Then, like, just kind of drink tickets and the opportunity to really kind of exposure and then also just kind of the opportunity to work on your craft. So, especially when you're starting out, like, those, like, pretty much any show, any stage time is good stage time. Even if you're, if, you, if, it, if the choice is between not getting up and getting up, it's always worth it to get up. But that also kind of creates this, of low ball dynamic within comedy where the lower level of comedians don't make a lot of money doing it. Like you might make one or two decent shows every once in a while, but it's, but the average show, any like, if you're working a club, you're going to get paid regardless. If you're doing kind of a DIY show, it's all kind of whether or not the bar is paying and whether or not, um, the person booking the room is paying because maybe the bar is like yeah we'll give you guys 200 bucks to do the show and just whoever's booking the show is just running it on the cheap and not paying anybody so oh,
0: okay so there's like a middleman yeah. in there
1: yeah yeah interesting yeah and, and most of the time that middleman is another comedian on the show and so it'll just be a comedian who's running their own show they'll be like yeah, i have a monthly show or i have a twice monthly show or a weekly show or i've worked out this relationship with this bar we can do this amount of time, then they'll also do the promotion, the booking and kind of the behind the scenes stuff for that show.
0: So there's kind of an entrepreneurial aspect to it.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, especially now, as like, you can kind of get in through the clubs, but you really, having your own show is definitely probably the easiest way to both have individual success as well as kind of get Exposure and build the relationships you need because if you have your own show and you're able to pay people any amount of money to do it, then you're building a relationship and you're showing that you have this kind of competency beyond just as a performer. So it's almost like personal competency of showing other performers like, oh, this guy like understands that it's important to show up on time. It understands to communicate before the show to make sure everybody has everything lined up. Also it's kind of a, if this, if this guy books me for his show, I'll book him for my show and kind of working like that.
0: Yeah. It makes yeah. sense people are like sharing their uh, like networks a little bit.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And I'd say that one of the, the weirdest things about comedy is that it is like like the business side of it is just like networking with just people booking shows, which might be other comedians. It might be somebody sitting in the room. It might be bar owners who like comedy but don't perform themselves it might be people who work for a comedy club, which range the people who are employed by comedy clubs. Sometimes they're comedians. Sometimes they're just people who have uh, history and bars and restaurants and entertainment. And you're kind of just building these connections. But since most of the other people you're dealing with are also other comedians, it built, it's this, it's this really odd thing where you're competing with other comedians for book spots and for stage time. And you're trying to prove yourself to be, better than other people that you might be like when someone's making the choice should I book comedian x or comedian y that you want to kind of prove yourself to be the better of those two comedians but at the same time you and comedian comedian x and comedian y might be working together net down the road they might be you might need the other person to book you for a show you might need them to fill in on a show you have so it's this weird relationship where it's you're competing with almost everybody out there but at the same time you're also working together with everyone out there and like in a way it seems almost impossible that both could be true but it kind of finds itself depending on like the context of every different show situation whether or not you're in direct competition with them or in
0: (laughs) yeah Uh, that makes sense i mean what you would gain from screwing someone over is like really small right like it's it's just a single show more or less that you might get instead of someone else but then like you have that reputation and like like, that can give you, like, many, many shows down the road if you're, like, if you have a good reputation. Yeah. With Yeah. Comedians. And,
1: yeah, and, and showing people that you treat them right. But, I mean, at the same time, people are always kind of, you'll, you'll see some Machiavellian tendencies from time to time just because it's human nature for some people to just try to work in their own best interests and screw other people out of their shows. It hasn't really happened to me. I haven't really experienced it, but I do know some other people who have had pretty dicey relationships and especially with like kind of the creative aspect of it where I think the biggest blow up within comedy is that there's only so much creative you can only talk about so many things and there's kind of there's some creative overlaps which will be misinterpreted as being malicious or they might even be where someone will like kind of take something from somebody's joke they'll take like a concept for a show they'll take maybe they'll butt in and instead of having one person book a really good room, somebody else will kind of take in and take that room from them by by uh, negotiating it away from an owner. And so you do see that every once in a while. But for the most part, I think you don't need to be shoving other people down to climb to the top.
0: That seems like a healthy dynamic.
1: Yeah, and I mean, maybe that also might just be my worldview where I just don't really want to be... I don't want to be this, like, malicious monster just screwing people over. I'd like to do – I'd like to have some some integrity as I tell people jokes.
0: How far away yeah. are you from being able to do uh, comedy full-time?
1: Uh, I'm still probably at least a year out. And so
0: – Yeah, what, what needs to happen between now and then?
1: I think that – I think that the next steps I need to take are to um, – Have a reoccurring show, whether it's a monthly show or a weekly show, and then to kind of build that show out to the point where people are interested in it. Where if it's a conceptual show, so I have an idea for a game show that I think, like a game show, a kind of panel show that other comedians could participate in. And I think that if it kind of had some success, then you could start putting episodes of it online and start building out an online presence for it. And so I think that that's one of the ways to do it. And then also, but also if it, the other way to do it would be to you know, kind of thinking of trying to pursue as well as, uh, is to prove yourself up as a stand-up comedian of enough talent that you can get an agent who will book you on uh, college tours. So to do perform for universities and perform for colleges, that's like a big, that's like what you do kind of before you start doing headlining at clubs nationwide. And so it's kind of proving myself to be at that level so, yeah so, so it's a little ways away but i think i'm making progress towards it
0: so i think you mentioned you wanted to give yourself like two years in la right <laughs> to like or like at least two years yeah, two yeah. years to start out how did you choose that amount of time
1: well i choose i wanted to do at least two years before moving back just because um from other comedians who have moved from seattle and moved places so i talked to some other friends who were like when they moved to New York and L.A., they were both like, yeah. Um, for the first year, I hated every single day up until like a week before my first year there. And they are like, yeah, I, I wanted to move back every day until about a week before at least a year. And so when I moved down, I was like, well, I got to give myself at least two years to try before I give up on doing stand-up here because... If you do it because sh- all the people that I talked to who had left earlier regretted it, and people said that after the first year, it really does improve from a morale standpoint. It doesn't really feel as much of like a of a painful grind. Yeah, and so right. I wanted to make sure I spent at least two years to really give it a shot. And I and I think that I've, I'm coming up on two years in LA, and so I think that I'm still gonna I still really do love living in LA. And so that wasn't a problem for me, and now it's just trying to keep pushing and stand-up and keep trying to find the avenue of success that's going to
0: work for me. What does success look like to you then? Like, how will we know if you're successful?
1: I don't know. That's, that is a really good question. I'd really like to be a game show host, so that's what I really want to do, and so I think that if I can be able to work for... A year and have a year's income, be not entirely, but my primary source of income for a year is as a game show host. I think that that would be success for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, like the podcast, m- mine's pretty similar. Like, if I could like pay my expenses such that I can continue to like put effort into this full time and like not have to do other things for income. Yeah, I, I think that's probably like. Uh, pretty significant inflection point in yeah. what I would want
1: I have a similar view on things
0: uh so conversely, like do you see yourself ever quitting?
1: Yeah, I think that at a certain point, if I don't start having success, I'll start trying to find an easier way to do things I don't know if there's a time frame to do it, but I think that it just it'd just kind of be like more of like a life like I'm no longer in a position where I can work two part-time jobs or I'm no longer in a position where I have the passion and energy to do stand up five nights a week if it's not paying dividends. So I I still have that desire and I don't, but I can see myself losing it at a certain point.
0: Yeah. So it'd be more of like like a fade out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that it would be it would, I would like, I, yeah. So I, I would probably kind of fade away, and like I, I really don't see myself ever completely stopping doing comedy, whether it's improv or stand up, or but quit pursuing it with the same vigor. I could see that happening a couple of years down the road if if I don't see any success.
0: Is it hard? Do you think like having a day job and balancing that with uh, comedy?
1: Not where I'm at right now, so it doesn't really have a lot of overlap, I think. Maybe from an energy standpoint, yeah. And yeah, yeah, I think it does, and I think it also just... It sucks a certain amount of like mental energy out of you to like spend all day at your job and then to go do comedy, and if it's doesn't go well, it can feel like, ha, oh, why, why don't I just go home? But I think it's more of like a frustrating indictment on my lack of success to still have a day job than it is a... Uh, like an energy or time issue
0: I guess okay so then uh, conversely does it feel like your comedy career is like getting in the way of like a day job like that career progression yeah yeah so I
1: would definitely be doing if I wasn't doing comedy I probably wouldn't be doing what I do as a day job
0: so what do you think you would do instead
1: if I had no desire to do comedy, like, if I was a completely different person, but, um, which is, like, it's wild to say, but, I don't know, I was, I really enjoyed math, and so, I really like doing word problems, and so I was interested in becoming an actuary, and so that was what I was kind of looking into for a while, and so, I mean, I have, like, an economics degree and, like, a applied math background, so it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it would be kind of hard for me now. I mean, it wouldn't be impossible, yes, to totally switch over, but it would be harder, but I, I don't think I would have the time to be a full-time actuary and a comedian.
0: Yeah, I can see. I mean, I feel like that. I've noticed that just with like past jobs and like trying to do some writing and stuff on the, on my, like weekends and evenings, both of them just go like a lot slower. Like I'm less focused at my job because I'm really thinking about writing, and I have like less energy for like writing or I mean whatever the project adjour is. I was just curious about that cause it seems like it's like it's a pretty tricky balance to figure out.
1: Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think that there is some merit to the idea that if I was doing all of my time in the world of comedy, that I would probably have more success. And I think that's true. And I've been looking into trying to transition and find a day job, so to speak, in the world of comedy or in television or film production, so I'm looking into it and trying to figure it out. And so
0: Did I ask you why you want to be a comedian in particular?
1: I, yeah we kind of touched upon it I just saw it and I thought I was like, it was just like I saw it at Comedy Central and I was just like this is the coolest thing that you can do so it really I was like this is really great I really want to do this and it was just it was just the coolest thing that I could imagine it looked so fun and it is and like that's the thing it's like it looked like oh man that looks so fun and it looked like something that I could do I was like hey, I think I can do that and then I can't, I have been able to do it. And so it's just like, oh yeah, this is the most fun thing you can do. Cause like when you feel like you're doing comedy, when you are successfully able to like go from bit to bit and know that like what your material is, is going to work and know that if you're going to riff on something that the audience is paying attention and they'll give you the benefit of the doubt and like know that like, that you have the instincts that what you think is going to work will work and when it's all clicking and all working like there's no more gratifying feeling it feels like you know magic because you're able to just kind of tell people to laugh on command yeah like it's just like you feel like you have like yeah 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 it's really neat it's like it's like you have like some sort of like charm over people you're just able to be like all right guys laugh and then everyone laughs and you're like all right quiet down i'm gonna tell this part now laugh and it feels (laughs) it feels like magic and so i was like I was like, that's what it looks like, and I was like, yeah, this is so, it's so fun to do, and so that's, like, the big reward, I mean, like, I, so I haven't had a lot of, like, financial success in comedy, I've had some, sure, but I haven't had, like, a ton, but, like, the real success is just being, like, night to night, when you get it to work with an audience, it's so gratifying.
0: That's really cool. So, the flip side of that, can you remember a time when you just bombed on stage? Uh, sure. Can you, like, walk me through that a little bit? You bomb every, like, every once in a while, pretty
1: often, like, one of the more interesting bombs I've had is that I was doing this one show or it's a show back up in Seattle at this place, Tai that I love performing at. Like a really fun room in Seattle. And um, I just like got on. And, but like right before we had this guy drop in, David Borey, he's been on Conan. He's like a really, really funny comedian from San Francisco. And he dropped in to the, the place and was like, hey, can you put him on the show? And so the the booker, or not the booker, but the, the show organizer, yeah, and booker, was like, all right, we'll put you up and they put him up right before me because they're like, all right, Carl's pretty good. He'll be able to get out of this. And so they put up this like super fantastic comedian, David Bory, before me. And he just absolutely destroyed this audience. And like most of the people performing that night were open micers. And so then now they had this just like professional, like up and coming, like really talented comedian coming on and just like absolutely destroying and like making it look so effortless. And then like, I was like, i got on stage after him and this was like a few years ago so i wasn't as talented or hasn't like done anything similar and so i just like got on stage and like nothing i did worked. like everybody could kind of see through all of the different like they could see every punchline coming nothing was clever nothing seemed clever and then i kind of got nervous about it and so i kind of uh like tensed up and they could tell they were like this guy doesn't have the same fun and like confident energy that that last guy did this guy must suck and so then basically just nothing i did work and i was like all right i gotta switch over to like my good material and i even tried my jokes that like regularly almost always work and they just didn't work and i just like i just didn't ever have it and then lost it and just was just eating trash and was just like all right see the light get off stage just like nothing was working like and i think that one of the things about comedy is like even if you don't like say it out loud, like the uh, people can read other people, and so if you start to bomb and start to have a bad set and start to lose that, like lose that confidence you have in yourself and your material, then they're not gonna follow along on that journey. So they're not gonna trust you to take control of the room and take control of the narrative that's going on. There, the people are just gonna be like, "All right, we're done." Like that's this guy doesn't know what he's doing we're not going to follow him like we'll listen to what he's saying but we're not going to like pay attention enough to like see when his reveals are for the other information that would be the punchlines because we don't trust that it's going to be funny and so that's kind of what happens when you bomb
0: wow do you remember what it was like getting on stage after that time like the subsequent time like right after bombing
1: yeah yeah you're a little bit more cautious and but then at the same time like even at that point, I'd been doing comedy for a while where you'll just you'll just bomb. And so it's really about just being like, all right, new set, like new opportunity. It's a great, it's another opportunity to make this audience laugh. Those people weren't there at the other show. And so you might not have total confidence in your material, but you just kind of got to go up and be like, all right, I'm just going to do good stuff and just do my best and really just focus on that. And if you do that, you're going to be fine.
0: Seems like a good attitude.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's what you got to have. Like, You can't really like be like... You can't start out your set nervous, like because then people will just never engage.
0: Are you the type of person who get, gets like stage fright at all, or is like uh, remotely nervous before you start talking?
1: No, I am. I've always been a very confident talker, and so I got stage fright the first couple of times I did comedy, but not anymore.
0: Has it just made you like an amazing public speaker?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I am like really good at public speaking. I've always been pretty good at it, but then like like now I'm. I don't know, I'm very, like, I do it fairly often, so I will say, like, it is weird doing, like, presentations and speaking on non-comedy things, like, doing a presentation at work, because it's just, like, because sometimes, like, five minutes into the presentation, you'll be like, wow, I haven't gotten a single laugh yet, and then you have to remind like, yourself, <laughs> oh, like, I don't need to get a laugh, like, this is about, like, the global reach of our most recent, like, company outreach, this isn't... <laughs> this isn't material like they don't need to be laughing but they look engaged they're still listening and that's what's important it's, it's it's like recognizing that so that is that is a thing yeah
0: do the, pe- the people you work with know you're a comedian
1: yeah I bring it up and I'll talk about it and I'll invite them to shows every once in a while
0: is there like a pressure to be funny around that like when you give a like a sales presentation or something like- there is
1: I don't really feel it because I'm just like I don't I'll do my best but like I don't need to be like
0: extraordinarily
1: funny just because I don't know. That's not what I'm being paid to do. (laughs) But I mean I do I do sometimes like when people are talking about it and they'll be like, hey will you tell a joke? And like and you're just like, alright, yeah. But Or like sometimes I'll be like, I will like preface it or like I'll I'll have a story and I'll be like, oh we'll be talking about something and I'll be like, oh I have like a minute long joke about this and I'll but I'll be like Preface it like, oh, I have a joke about this, and then if they're interested, they'll i say it. But I don't like force it down people's throats because I don't really want to like force them to think I'm funny. Kind of want them to see me as a competent individual.
0: Do you get like tired of people asking you, for you asking no. you for jokes?
1: Not really. I don't like it. I understand it. Like I understand. Like if somebody told me they were a juggler, I'd like to see them tell. I'd like to see
0: them juggle. Like it'd be kind of weird if the juggler is like, no man, that's just my job. Yeah, that's my th-
1: yeah, and so I try to, like, yeah, and so I'll just have, like, I've been doing
0: this other bit, like, too, that I
1: think is really funny, where in real life, where someone asks me, like, if someone, like, kind of older asks me, like, oh, so you're a comedian, do you have any jokes? I'll do this joke where I'll just be like, uh, I'll, just, I'll just, like, do my best Jerry Seinfeld impression and just be like, what's it going to take to get these millennials off their damn cell phones? Because half the and I'll just be like, leave it at that. Because it's like, half the time they're not looking for material as much as they're, like, looking for what they think a joke is. So, like, they're not even looking for an actual good joke. They just want to see, like, oh, yeah, this is a guy who does stand-up. So, I just do that, like, fucking bullshit. Because I think it's so funny. <laughs> it's just like... It's just like, oh, yeah, millennials, like, yeah, they're always on their phones. Like, yeah, because everybody's on their phones, because being on your phone is great. Like, <laughs> but, like, for whatever reason, everyone's mad about it. and so they just want to see, like, yeah, that's, like, that's like they want that, like, Tim Allen garbage.
0: What's the dual with airline food? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like, everyone, like, no one would laugh at that anymore, but everyone yeah. has that same image of, like, no, that's what comedy is.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, oh, yeah, it's some bozo in, like, a ill-fitting blazer in front of a brick wall in a basement like and that's kind of what comedy is but <laughs> it's a little bit more nuanced
0: when you told people that you were going to move to LA what were your like family and friends reactions
1: uh I've been talking about it pretty much since like junior or senior year of college I was like I want to move to LA at some point to do comedy so my parents were my parents are pretty supportive they're very supportive of me doing comedy they think they've always been very supportive so was my like family so I, like when I first started out like you needed to have an audience to get up at the comedy clubs. And so like my aunt would always come to shows and so she was very supportive. And I don't know, I think my family, like I think that they would have liked me to take a, a more traditional path to career success, but they understand that I really enjoy doing standup and that I have a certain amount of skill doing it and that I'm doing a certain amount, a fair amount of work towards achieving it. And so when I did Bumper Shoot the first time so the Arts and Music Festival, my parents came to see me there. And so they've been very supportive of me moving. And then my friends, um, they kind of understood. Wow. I do miss a lot of my friends back in Seattle. And it has been like hard, just like not being able to spend as much time with my friends, especially as like they have kind of their own successes in their own lives. And like, it's cool to see them all kind of grow as people too and not to necessarily be there is kind of hard but at the same time I think when I moved to LA people kind of people really understood that what I needed to do and the timing was right and it made sense no like no one tried to talk me out of it (laughs) and so people try to talk me into moving back now but when I moved people understood that it was a a a risk and a, a something I needed to explore
0: How much of your time goes into, like, writing jokes and performing, I don't know, I guess, like, comedy things, and how much of your time goes into, like, the business side of comedy, like, finding gigs and stuff? Uh,
1: I put, I probably put too much energy into the the performing side of things. I I really do need to improve the, kind of, my um, booking side of things. And and so, from writing perspective, um, I try to write, a set a number of words a day I try to write like about 400 words a day of like just things that I think might generally be funny comedy concepts and sometimes that's just kind of extrapolating a thing. so I so like my writing process is I have a note section of my phone where anytime I have kind of a idea for a joke I'll write it down there and so it'll just kind of be maybe five words just to get an idea of, like, what I think is funny. So it might be, like, I don't know. Like I think, like – oh, I, I don't have my phone on me. But, um, uh, so, like, it might be just, like, like Pizza Hut, Pizza Hut salad bar robbery. And, like, because I have some funny idea for a Pizza Hut salad bar robbery. And I think that that would be a funny joke concept. Like, there's some element of that of, like, somebody doing that. And then it's just kind of – I'll kind of play around with it in my head of – I'll pretend as if I'm saying it and just kind of do, I want to try to tell it as a story. Do I want to tell it as like, wouldn't it be funny if, and just kind of, I I tend to try to put things into the context of a story. So even if it's an idea that hasn't really happened to me in real life, I'll kind of figure out to phrase it and be like, how would this have happened if it had happened to me? So like, it would be like, so I was at a pizza hut kind of building the details and building the world around the event that I think is funny. And so I kind of just do that in my head and do a different couple different iterations of that and then kind of do a similar thing writing it. So I'll write different iterations and then that's where I kind of more focus on kind of which words I want to use. So if there's particular words that I want to use for the punchline of a joke, I'll try them out writing them there and just kind of see how they look in writing. Because if, it, if it's like a clever punchline, it should be funny kind of if you can read it as well as if it's said out loud. So if it's like the actual joke is very solid and then from there you perform it, if it's if it's a successful bit, you'll perform it hundreds of times because you'll be doing it over and over again and it'll be reliable. And so you basically just, every time you do it, you try a little bit different variation of it and that can be as subtle as, well, I was just in a better mood the second time I did the joking the first time. And so I did it with a little bit more chipper attitude. Sometimes you'll mess with the wording. Sometimes you'll mess with like the structure of how the information is released So rather than having – so the way I kind of do – I do things a lot like an outline. So just from a writing perspective, I really use outlines. Like I very rarely write without creating an outline first. And so before I go on stage, I build a very short outline of the jokes I want to do. And so it will be kind of the header premise of the bit, kind of the title of it. And then I'll put the individual punchlines into different sections within an outline. And then I'll have – so if I'm doing five minutes set, I'll probably have anywhere to do three to five jokes, maybe two long ones, or I wanna do three short ones, and so I'll just be like, I'm gonna do uh, like jet ski bit, punchline for jet skis, two punchlines for jet skis, maybe a third optional one if the joke's working, and then the second bit will do a, um...
0: Wait, how do you know, like, how do you decide when to bail out on a joke? versus like doubling down.
1: Yeah, um, typically uh, the way I write my material is that I'll often have, um, so if I have like one big punch, I'll often have a couple other smaller punch lines throughout the, the joke, so it'll be stuff kind of, as you're revealing information, you might have this joke that kind of comes across like an offhand comment. That little bit is just like an immediate little like, I'll just throw that joke in there just because as I'm kind of setting up the story, it's not, but then I'll start (laughs) to kind of see, are people paying attention? And if nobody laughs at that at all, then I'll be like, all right, I need to just kind of focus on getting to the final punchline. But if people are laughing at like the little things that you throw in there, then it's like, all right, then I can just kind of play around with it a little more. Or do I kind of move on to some sillier elements of, but then I'll know if people just aren't interested in the first part, of the joke, then I'll get rid of either one of the, the sub jokes within that, or I'll move to the punchline at the end of one, or I'll just totally bail. And the moment I have a punchline, I'll get out of that and try to just totally go into a different, different idea or a different section of humor. And so that's kind of my writing process is building out those outlines and then figuring out how they fit together with other material that I have. And so Building the set is something that is kind of constantly going on in my head, but from a focus perspective, it's normally about 30 minutes before I perform, I sit down with a note card and write it out.
0: Oh, okay. that. Like that soon that sh- that before a performance.
1: Yeah, because a lot of it's kind of by feel, where it's like, I don't, do I want to do silly stuff? Do I want to do kind of more serious focus stuff?
0: Right. It kind of depends on the mood you're in.
1: Yeah, of course. I don't know one of the one of the joys about being where I am in comedy is that people don't have an expectation. So I'm not like Jim Gaffigan or somebody where they have kind of an expectation that when they go to a Jim Gaffigan show, he's going to do material about his kids. He's going to do material about food, food, and yeah. yeah, yeah, like like, and then maybe even he'll do his
0: like, general obesity, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things of that nature.
1: This is slovenly choices. <laughs> Oh man, I I remember like, I saw Jim Gaffigan, I've seen Jim Gaffigan twice, and the second time was like, after he was like, much more famous, and he genuinely like, he ends his set where he just does like, the hour that he wants to do, and then, and it was great, and then at the end he's like, I know that a lot of people are here to see the Hot Pockets bit, and there are literally people like, at the show, who just like, at that point just are like, yeah, he's doing the Hot Pockets bit, like, are saying that out loud <laughs> in this theater. It's like, oh, yeah, great. It's the Hot Pockets bit. And he like – and he preferences it by just – he goes like – he goes like, I don't really enjoy this bit that much anymore, but it's putting all five of my kids through college, so here we go. And then he just <laughs> does the bit, and people love it. But I rarely have people who are expecting to hear a specific joke or stuff, so I can really do it based on what I think is funny, and I think that that is something that it's – it's um I I can't speak for musicians really when they put together a set list, but from a comedian perspective, I think that if you stop thinking something is funny, then you shouldn't really tell it as a joke anymore, even if it's a really successful joke, because you're kind of being dishonest in a way is if you, if you don't find it funny at all, like maybe what you think is funny about it is different. But for me, I think that like, to communicate to the audience, like, this is when you should laugh, you should also genuinely feel like laughing. Like, I still think, like... I still kind of laugh at almost all of the jokes that I've written, except for the ones that I've totally thrown out.
0: That's interesting, because it seems like stuff could get tired. I mean, jokes get tired eventually, but then being like the joke being tired for the comedian is a lot different from the joke being tired for the audience. Cause like the comedian tells it like hundreds of times but the audience hears it like four or five, like any given person in the audience might hear it only like a couple of times. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just that I, I haven't gotten there or I haven't built enough material or I haven't just, I'm not that type of person, but I just haven't really found, if it's kind of funny, it stays funny And if it it does get tired, then I try to find ways to kind of evolve the joke to be like, well, what was funny about it? Do I still think anything's funny about that? How can we use the structure of this successful bit to go to – so sometimes it will be as simple as like, well, I'm kind of bored with the first three minutes of this joke. So I'm going to write an additional two minutes to stick in the middle or to put it at the end as a transition where – now I'll use it as a tool to get to what I do think is really funny and what I find interesting and so and so then it won't necessarily feel like a slog to get through. Yeah, yeah so then so you're saying about how much time I spend with the writing and performing. And so that's kind of the process for performing is that so I'll, I try to perform five nights a week just doing most, mostly open mics, but then mixing in book shows as well. Um, and then I'll, I'll try to let's try to be on stage, so I don't really count if I'm doing like rehearsals for improv. So it's like improv because you're working with a group. It, I it, I think it's important to like work together even off stage because with improv because you have so many people and and you can't there's no real open mic process where there isn't really a lot of just rooms where you can try stuff out and if it totally fails then. It's it's okay, um, and so with improv, I think you do have to do a fair amount of rehearsal off stage with the people you're performing with because because you do have multiple people there, you can have a more a larger feedback pool than with rehearsing stand up on your own where it's just you and a mirror potentially or you and like a couple comedians working stuff out. But with improv, you can kind of get a dynamic and kind of get a good feel so that when you go on stage it's good so I don't really count rehearsals but so for but I will rehearse once try to do once a week with our group we've kind of slacked off a little bit in the last couple months but we try to do once a week for rehearsals and then we have a show every other week
0: is it a pretty constant group like same group of people
1: yeah yeah so it's been pretty much the same group of people like we used to have six and now we regularly perform with three there's two other people that will still join us and sometimes we'll also add in another performer as long as we have the base of people there that we know we have the kind of safety net to be able to work with somebody we haven't worked with before on stage. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's the same people we've been working together for a little over a year now. Yeah, and that's how that's really fun because you build this chemistry where it's... the, The really fun thing about improv is that you have all sorts of people working on potentially the same joke and so it's a lot more dynamic and a lot more kind of constructive from a group setting where it's everybody adding to this joke and some concept that I would never have thought, like, oh, we're gonna make fun of beekeepers. And I I think the funniest thing about beekeepers is how they have to blow smoke everywhere. And then another person might come out and be like, I think the funniest thing about beekeepers is that their suits aren't very sexy, so I'm gonna do a sexy beekeeper suit. And like maybe that's something I was like, I've never even considered that as a joke premise, but they're executing it perfectly, and so like and then that's able to work off of, and I'll play in a little bit of my smoke machine joke that I was gonna do, and then bam, we have like a joke that organically came about from a couple creative minds, and I think that that's a really really fun thing about improv versus stand up, where stand up it's a lot more improv is definitely a lot more in the moment and then kind of playing on that energy and back and forth between the different people participating whereas stand-up is a very iterative process like it's kind of doing things and refining it and then kind of working from there and there are some moments of spontaneity and there are some moments and you have to mix those in just to make it doesn't so it doesn't seem like you're just reading stuff off and then that's kind of one of the more fun things about stand-up is trying to figure out where you get to kind of go off the cuff and and talk about what might just be what's touching you at that exact moment of what's really connecting with you in the audience. And you can explore that with stand-up, but with improv, that's all you're doing is exploring what is interesting to you and the people you're with. And you have this, but because you don't have the burden of doing all 30 minutes on your own you can kind of pick and choose when you want to use your energy and use your input
0: do you see that as like a way you could become like successful like professionally or is it more of like an exercise for like to feed into you, like your stand up
1: yeah i think that improv has a lot of uh, avenues for i think improv has more avenues for success than stand up cuz it's a more general skill that's more valuable for filmed content so a lot of the people that a lot of the people that you see on like commercials and and kind of smaller comedy bits and stuff will generally just be improvisers who the people at the people at I don't know O'Reilly Auto Parts know that if they bring in these three improv people they can kind of play around with this script about buying auto parts and it'll be a fun way to show that people are doing auto parts stuff and so it's like So a lot of the commercial people will – a lot of the commercial gigs are going towards improvised people, people who have an acting as well as an improv improv background. And so one of the things about being an improv in L.A. is to sometimes be like just watching – you'll be doing a show and then later that night you'll be watching TV and you'll be like, hey, I did a show with that guy and now he's selling Subway sandwiches or something like that. And it's pretty – and so that's that's a a pretty successful avenue for – kind of seeing success there and then I also think that improv especially the way they do it at UCB which is the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles it's it's really the way that they structure the improvised performances really is similar to how a lot of sketch writing and television writing is being done nowadays and so it really does kind of help with writing out sketches and writing out uh, television shows and stuff like that by doing improv stuff rather than the and the storytelling you do through improv, where you have different characters playing off each other, rather than kind of stand up, which is one person telling a story and maybe having different like like with Seinfeld, it always kind of came from one or two perspectives, and then from there it was kind of built upon by the world of characters they had whereas like Parks and Rec is very much just it's a every kind of B or C or A plot on that show is is has a plot about one character but it's mainly about how the different characters are kind of goofing around and interacting with an idea.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about how that comes together for like uh, for a sketch and TV comedy?
1: Sure. Sure. So um, so um, I myself have done some like I've written one pilot that me and my buddy have a show that we have been kind of working on since uh, college. So for quite a few years now, we've had this idea for a show that started out as just an improv show, started out as a two man show, where it was just two of us. And then we really liked doing this two man show it was a two man history show. And so we just were like, what if we started writing down what we were doing? And so we started writing down. So we had these two set characters that are these time traveling characters and they're, they're time traveling dads and their son gets kidnapped and, and so they have to go back in time. And, and then we just started kind of playing with these characters and kind of doing a little bit more of the improv stuff of like, well, what if they went back to this era? All right, what would be the challenges there? And then, and then so like when we ran through the show afterwards, we would write all that down and then kind of start writing uh and, an episode for the show where you kind of just base it off of what you know about uh, sitcoms and stuff, where it's like, all right, there's an A plot and a B plot. Well, it worked out really well because the way we were doing live shows, we'd have one person be a main character and one person be the secondary characters, and then alternate scene to scene who was doing that. And so then we just kind of did the same thing writing for the for the episode there or, or the episodes we've done, where it's just like, all right, the two characters will separate and then. Almost like Scooby-Doo, they'll explore this world, and hijinks will arise, and then hopefully by the end of the episode, they'll have solved their problem and returned to their own time period, and kind of building stuff and escalating the game over the course of those different scenes. And so, what you're doing in a lot of improv scenes is your, especially the way UCB does it, but also just kind of general, like, the way... So, like, some theaters, like Groundlings is another one of the big theaters they have down here, and they're really focused on character development, so kind of developing the characters throughout the different scenes, so from scene to scene, how does this character learn more, how do they develop, how do they play on the elements that people enjoy, so, oh, this is a really wacky guy who um, can't quite get anything out of his pockets. so he's a very funny, physical guy where he always has like, oh, you need a tissue, I have one right here in my pocket, hold up, wait, and maybe spending 20 minutes or plus spending the whole scene trying to get things just out of his pockets, and that's the joke that they're gonna develop through the character, whereas, whereas and so that's kind of like a character element, whereas from the like UCB side of things where they're doing things that's like a game, so a game in their eyes is basically what is one little funny element that we can extrapolate, and it's so maybe instead of having one character who can't get things out of their pocket and that's the game is that they're the game is that rather than in the real world where it's very easy to remove something from your pocket this character always struggles with it and so maybe it's not an element of who they are as a person but it's also it's just a I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly I might get just totally chastised by people who know more than me but uh, how I understand it is that you kind of extrapolate game by the groundlings are doing it as a character flaw or character idea where it's like if this idea of not being able to pull something out of your pockets is the game, then you're just kind of be trying to work with that. And then for the next scene, you can choose to be either later on time-wise from that character. And this is all based on an idea of a Herald, which came from, uh, Close, who was this like legendary improv instructor back in Chicago, back when like all the people who started SNL, like John Belushi, Rick Moranis, and all those guys were like working in like all the kind of Ghostbusters people and Harold Ramis and such. When they were doing improv in Chicago, they developed this idea where it's called the Herald, where based on a monologue, you go through or not necessarily a monologue, but it could be just any sort of idea to pull an idea out from a scene and then kind of extrapolate on these very small elements over and over and try to build different worlds around these small little games, as they say. And so for a lot of television and stuff, you'll do something similar where the game of the scene might be that, I don't know if it's Seinfeld, Elaine is going to lose her job if she doesn't get two dozen roses from this one specific florist. All right. So then scene one is she needs to get these roses. And why can't she get these roses? Like you should just be able to get the roses. But the game is that it's impossible for her to get the roses. So she goes to the rose store And it turns out that the woman behind the counter has some sort of past relationship with her where Elaine accidentally cut her in line a month ago. And so then that woman won't sell the roses to Elaine. So that's the first iteration of the game. And the second iteration of the game is how is Elaine going to get these roses where, all right, maybe she tries to pay somebody off the street to buy the roses, but then the person they pay off the street buys a flower that they like more. They buy a bunch of daffodils and Elaine's like, why didn't you buy roses? And the person's like, I don't like roses, I like daffodils. And it's like, it's not your choice. And so then they kind of argue about that. The, the third iteration is that they wait until the store is closed, wait for them to throw out the flowers at the end of the day, and then they go in and they grab the roses. And so they do acquire the roses, but they don't necessarily buy them. And then you could have a final punchline for the show that would be like, uh, why do these roses smell like garbage? Because they got their roses from the garbage. And like that's kind of how you could play with this game element of why is it so hard to get these roses
0: has this ruined tv for you
1: i don't know maybe kind of uh i definitely watch television differently like i definitely since i started doing improv i became a lot less impressed with like sitcoms and stuff and became a lot more impressed with a lot of like animated shows why is that I think it's just because animated shows I think because they don't have the limitations of the physical world they can throw in a lot more jokes so they have the ability to throw in a lot more visual jokes and for example like when you're watching Bob's Burgers they'll always have little jokes as like the name of the store the name of the truck that's driving by and or like the name of the the magazine that they're reading and like this kind of all this stuff that they're like just throw it like it might be on screen the burger board yeah the burger board like stuff that might be on screen for like less than 15 seconds they can be like all right we can throw a joke in there whereas if you're filming it in person if you're gonna have like a fake magazine that's gonna be on screen for a second you gotta pay somebody to design the fake magazine cover print it out make sure that it's glossed up to look like a real magazine like make it a prop and like i'm a very bits heavy person i'm not a big plot guy and so just because like i really do just like jokes (laughs) like and so for me a plot is just like all right this is a tool that you can use to deliver better and more interesting jokes by developing the story but i just kind of just like all right i just want as many jokes as possible but i'm not a, i i guess i'm not like a huge fiction guy like another thing like i think that tv hasn't really necessarily been ruined by my understanding of how it's kind of constructed but i think it's mainly just like i feel like nowadays it's really successful to have a TV show where it's serialized. So every episode is built upon what happened in the last episode. You need to watch all 10 episodes to get an idea for what's going on in this specific story arc. And then once you watch that season, you need to watch like three more seasons. And like, I just don't have the ability to keep up anymore. I feel like cause there's, it's no longer just like, all right, I'll watch like seven episodes of, a TV show just randomly, like two, maybe two from one season, like whenever it just happens to be on TV. Whereas now because you have the kind of itemized choices to watch every episode, I feel like outside of animation there aren't a lot of television shows that are doing standalone episodes. Like Always Sunny is, Modern Family Does, Blackish does. Girls, every episode is kind of built on this in this world in the story arc. And even though it is, like, a comedy show, it's also, like, you have to watch every episode, which I'm just, like, I don't have the, the focus to do that. I don't know. Are you a big... Do you watch a lot of, like... Like, are you a big Game of Thrones guy?
0: Uh, like, kind no. Of shows? No, I, I, I ruined the show by, like, reading the books. Oh! <laughs> and, like, That'll the show is honestly better than the books, but it's not better than nothing when, like, you, you kind of know that the plot, yeah. where it's going. I don't know. And I think now, at this point, the show is, like, ahead of the books. So, oh, like... Right. <laughs> I should have just kept watching the show, but no, nah, I don't know. Not, nah, I'm just too far behind. I've just given up on it.
1: Well, you'll be able to catch back up. That's. It.
0: I like how encouraged you are. You are about something that matters not at all. <laughs> Come on, man, you can do it.
1: Yeah yeah, 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 Don't give up. Like, if you one thing, if you were like, oh, I just gave up. It's like, oh, you can't give up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I've
1: retired as a Game of Thrones watcher. Like, oh, good for you.
0: Yeah, you put in a lot of hard work. You deserve that. <laughs>
1: And we just spend more time with my family.
0: Um, so, can you tell me a little bit more about um, your decision to move down to LA? Yeah, I, I mean, starting with I guess uh, YLA.
1: Yeah. So, in comedy, uh, most of the working gigs are in Los Angeles or New York, and so that's where you can get gigs. Um, and it is kind of diversifying with the internet. So, I won't say that that's a hundred percent true because there are a lot of you can have success outside of the entertainment industry a lot easier now out of places that aren't necessarily Los Angeles or New York but kind of traditionally and then also from a competitiveness standpoint is the best comedians in the United States I would say 90% of them live in Los Angeles or New York and so because not only is it a big media hub but also it's just there's a lot of people here and so there's a lot of different opportunities to perform in front of wide-ranging audiences and so i was working in seattle doing comedy i was doing it i did it for about five years i kind of worked my way up where i went from i was being i was a regular host of the comedy clubs i was also doing feature sets at the clubs and then i was also like kind of headlining gigs so longer 30 to 45 minute sets for diy shows bar shows Kind of smaller shows But also decent size shows as well And then the thing about doing it in Seattle Is that there's Portland which is three hours away And I've done a lot of really fun comedy in Portland I love Portland And then there's Vancouver which is three hours away there's, a, and there's some other clubs Kind of nearby But for the most part you're really kind of isolated up in the Northwest. So Los Angeles is a place where there was not only a larger scene, a larger kind of world, there's more jobs in the industry, whether that's writing for television shows, performing stand-up, writing for stand-ups, writing for commercials, acting in commercials, and then kind of performing live shows either here or in California or finding an agent and, and start doing college shows. Really kind of at a certain point, I felt like if I wanted to grow more as a comedian, I needed to kind of start fighting in a in a bigger weight class or or move up to a, I guess, a, like a bigger fish or a smaller fish in a bigger pond and so kind of compete in Los Angeles. And also, I had lived in Seattle my whole life. I had lived there, so I moved when I was 24. And so I'd lived there my whole life, and I was like, well, this is great. I love this city, but I kind of do want to explore something while I still have, like... Well, I don't have I don't have a mortgage I don't have a like I, I don't have kids I didn't have a girlfriend so I was like all right yeah this is a time where I can just kind of pick up and move and I was working from home at the time for my day job and so it really there was nothing stopping me from moving to Los Angeles so me and a buddy just found a house down here through a family friend of his so we had a pretty cheap rent experience and so it's pretty easy to move down and then I already had a couple buddies I have a really good friend down here who works for, uh, he books a music venue. They also do some comedy, but they mainly do music, and so I have a friend, and we go to concerts together a good amount. I have some other friends who are living down here, too. Um, I have another friend who's, who's working, he um, works kind of just more in the film industry, he's doing PA stuff, and now he's working for a, a, a bigger company. And so I have some buddies down here in the entertainment industry, but they're also just like I have some friends down here already, and so it, was, it became, moving to Los Angeles was very much just like, well, I want to live in a bigger city. I want to compete in a bigger market comedically. And then also I have a social network outside of comedy so that once I got down here, I wouldn't exhaust myself doing comedy because I'd also be able to do other stuff with my friends, which is a big problem that you hear with people burning out when they move to new cities to do comedy is that they'll move to the new city to do comedy. And then when you move to a new city, you pretty much have not pretty much, but you do have to kind of start over in a lot of ways. Cause I had a reputation in Seattle and then I just had a very minimal reputation in LA. Like I knew some comedians down here. I knew a couple people who could book me for stuff, but really I didn't have the network of shows and I didn't have the reputation as a, uh, per, as a talented performer down here. And so it's kind of building that respect up. It's, it's starting again at the open mics It's starting again at the showcases. It's proving to people that you, Can do comedy. It's learning how to adapt your material. Because I came down with probably an hour of material. And then when I got to Los Angeles, some of it didn't work as well. Some of it needed to change. Some of it just was too kind of odd. And Seattle and LA, it's definitely, it's kind of almost cliche to say, but Seattle is a little bit more, they're a little nerdier. They're a little bit more bookish if you come across like a know-it-all in Seattle, you can kind of be like, oh yeah, this is this is a guy like us. We like this know-it-all, whereas in, in LA, if you come across this like a know-it-all, people are like, this guy is annoying, he's a jerk. Like, we don't need to be listening to him like whine about some book he's read or like something like that. Whereas people in Seattle are like, oh yeah, yeah, this guy reads books, me too. Like, and not that people in LA don't read books, and there are audiences in LA which will embrace kind of the stuff, but I think for me personally, I've really had to change a lot in the last two years to address how I kind of present myself on stage. I don't think dumb it down is the right word, but definitely make it a little bit more open to people who might not necessarily be drawing from the same information pool that I am. Because one of the biggest things about doing comedy is that it's this element of power where you do have this power over the audience where you're controlling the microphone, you're controlling the narrative of the show and how they react to things. If they're bold enough to speak during the show, if they're bold enough to kind of stop paying attention, they can see some, they can like take power as well. And so it is like a power dynamic where both sides are represented, but a successful comedy show as the comedian, you've won over the audience to trust you to do, to take them along on the comedy show so to kind of just this is where we're going to go everybody listen up we're going to do it and there's plenty of different ways to get it like to get everybody to kind of just get into that everybody listen up this is what we're doing is this kind of idea where you're trying to get and you can do that by like kind of winning them over and being like hey guys don't you want to come along this journey and then i've also seen comedians have success where they kind of like almost berate the audience and yell at them and kind of have like I have all this energy you're not going to be able to defeat me with this energy so I'm just going to like take us on this crazy journey and you're just going to come along for the ride and like those comedians sometimes are very successful like I think like that works really well for like a lot of like the like insult comics and if you're doing like roast jokes or if you're kind of doing stuff in a mean spirited way it helps to kind of yell and 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 kind of exercise you're you're forced that way but for me i kind of all my stories are kind of just like goofy stories about myself and so it's really is like trying to win the audience over of like i hope you guys like me so that you'll like this story about me and it's kind of how do i get people to like me and like who i'm presenting on stage too so i think that kind of boils down to one of the other that kind of touches upon another really interesting element of stand-up is that um, people often talk about bombing and kind of what, who you are on stage. It's a very, it's very similar and I take a lot of pride and I, I've, I've put a lot of effort and care into developing my voice on stage and who I am. But I also, I think it's important. And one of the things that I still struggle with as a comedian is learning how to not take it personally when people don't like your performance because you're presenting something that is very personal that you spent a lot of time on that you've worked really hard on. And sometimes it just won't resonate with an audience. Maybe it just won't work because your energy's down. Maybe it won't work because you are because you didn't tell the jokes correctly. Maybe it's there, you're in a distracting room where the lights are all on and, it, and you're doing material that's too edgy that no one wants to laugh about. Or maybe you're not doing material that's edgy enough and, and people are kind of bored with it and they wanted to and see something a little bit more extravagant or or a little more racy. And so there's all different elements of why your set might not be successful. A good comedian will be able to address all all of those elements. And and that's kind of part of the process is figuring out how to build your persona and build your set of jokes well enough that you can get yourself out of any situation and address the needs of the audience as they come up. But sometimes it's not always going to happen. You're going to bomb. And one of the things about doing comedy is learning how to separate you bombing on stage from you bombing as a person and to not take it as a failure of, oh, these people didn't like the stand-up of Carl Powers or they didn't, but they don't really, they never really get to see Carl Powers, so I can't take it personally and, like, at the end of the day, like, it's frustrating and so now, when I was first starting out doing comedy and I had a really bad set, I would take it really personally and I'd be like, wow, I I failed, those people didn't like me but lately, it's 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 still frustrating and it's the but it's the failure of like wow what I am crafting failed to deliver what the audience wanted. And so it's and it's figuring out how to change that rather than change yourself to be more likable.
0: How did you learn all of this stuff?
1: Uh trial and error. I've read some stuff about comedy and like watched some documentaries here and there but what I know about structure just comes from, like, listening to podcasts with comedians, kind of hearing how they approach it. And then also just kind of how I, I'm kind of... I think the analytical side just comes to... I do have, like, a decent math background. And, like, I was always, like, a big math guy in school. And so, like, that's kind of how I structure things is... I, I kind of order things and... And, like, there are... Like, as you said, like, there are comedians who are, like, just free-winging it. And some of the funniest people I've ever seen are people who have put, like, way different thought because it isn't less thought, but it's much less kind of like structured thought into doing their bit. It's more just like they just have this like very core concept of like who they are as a person and what idea they want to express. And they work really hard to express that. And they might not necessarily have put it through this process. Whereas for me, I kind of, I see comedy as, as almost like a math problem where you're given a set amount of time to perform and then how can you maximize the number of laughs or the audience enjoyment for that set amount of time? And so whether that's if you have I have 15 minutes, I can fit in my best three jokes or I can fit in these four jokes that will build together so that the final punchline will call upon something we've worked on earlier and it will have a nice cohesive structure. And they may not be my three strongest jokes in a vacuum, but if I present them correctly in this way, then I can maximize my punchline there. Or maybe I have one really, really funny 15 minute story that I can do. And so I just need to be able to kind of hold their focus, hold their focus for this first 10 minutes and then start dropping the punchlines for the last five. And then the closer will be just a monumentous occasion Or I want to do as many bits as I can and then hope that regardless of how it happens, it'll kind of build up into a performance that way. And so, and like kind of how I built that structure is just hearing how other people have put together their sets, talking with other comedians and kind of learning tips and tricks that way. And then improv is a little bit more structured because you do have like, you'll have instructors. So I have taken classes. I've gone to... Uh, festivals and uh, participated and heard a lot of the the improv and writing structure that comes from jokes I've heard from people who are professionals in the industry who have kind of that experience and are able to kind of teach that but from a stand-up perspective it's all just talking to other comedians and seeing how they approach their sets, how they organize their set lists, what they bring on stage and then kind of learning that and then trying it out myself.
0: Uh, that was something I actually want to ask. Like, uh, do you hang out with a lot of other comedians down there?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I, you're you're if you're going to an open mic five nights a week, you're most of the time you're going to be watching the show. But before the show starts, during the middle of the show, and you're kind of getting a little bored, or even after the show, you'll just kind of screw around, talk about everything from comedy. You do talk like some people like will just sort of obsessed with it, so they only talk about comedy. And then there's other people like who'll talk about like almost anything else. So I do hang out with a lot of comedians there. I uh, I I play basketball every Saturday with a bunch of comedians. Like it's a, it's a bunch of people that play, but like over half of the people that play are just other comedians who are all kind of at the same like we all love basketball, no one's really that good. Everybody passes a lot. Like it's 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 like a really fun basketball league. Like it's very low stakes, which is nice, but it's most often it's like the highlight of my week is just playing this basketball game with these other comedians because it's it's just it's just very like silly and like people don't really trash talk but if something funny happens it'll like the trash talk is very weird where it'll be kind of like long running bits rather than like immediately like nice pass idiot it's more just like someone making fun of something for like that's, like, an ongoing bit for the past, like, three weeks that happened at an open mic that everyone's, like... Well, if it isn't, like, pink socks, because somebody wore pink socks with shorts on stage in an open mic, and everyone thought it looked ridiculous. And so we'll just call that guy pink socks for, like, a month or something stupid like that. But it's just, it's just, like, a very funny, like, world of other comedians.
0: Okay, so back to moving to L.A. and everything. When you did that, what what was your plan? Like, did you have a plan?
1: Yeah, and so... My plan was was that I, uh, I wanted to move to LA, I wanted to start, um, I knew a couple headliners that I had talked to about writing jokes for them, and so my plan was to move down, kind of start seeing if I could write jokes for them, and then try to just kind of build myself back up to where I was in Seattle performing-wise, and so um, yeah, so it's just like go down, kind of showcase as much as I could, get on stage as much as I could, and kind of see what attention I could get. Um, And then try to also get in at UCB or one of the other improv theaters and start doing like regular improv work, which is something that I still have kind of put off, but it's still on my roadmap, but yeah, the plan was to do that and then also keep developing out the show that I was writing with my roommate. And so we're still working on it. We've kind of slowed down a little bit. And so we need to do kind of refocus and rework on that show. But we had like a show idea for like an animated show. And so it was kind of developing out that show and, and trying to get that pitched and trying to build the relationships to pitch that to like a network or somebody buying content. And then, Yeah, and then just kind of try to do as much stand-up as I could and then I was still kind of in Seattle doing a lot of show stuff and so it's also kind of building the network of performance places along the West Coast that I could conceivably do a tour and so I'm still trying to figure out how I can get that together. But yeah, so I think I I could have planned out a little bit more. I probably should have done a lot more just kind of, if I was going to recommend any other comedians moving, just do a lot more like, don't be afraid to email people and like email other people in different cities and reach out and and like kind of build the relationships before you move. And like in moving when I did, it just kind of taken slow. And the other thing is like I've I've been in the process of trying to put together a show and so my improv team's now got a regular show, it looks like, but then also just trying to do a regular stand up show because it does look like the easiest way to kind of make ground within the industry of performers is to have your own show and not only does it allow you to guarantee that you're going to have some stage time and guarantee that you have a place where you're to build an audience from, but also it allows you to kind of do favors for other comedians by putting them on and then have them reciprocate that by booking you as well. I think, yeah, that was the big plan was just to kind of take what I was doing in Seattle and try to extrapolate it down in Los Angeles.
0: How many hours a day do you put into this?
1: I probably put probably three hours in the stand-up, just uh, about, so I probably put 15 hours a week in the stand-up, like going to mics, writing, doing more, than like reaching out to other people, probably 15 to 20.
0: And what are you doing? You have another job, right?
1: I work part-time for a tech company that's still based out of Seattle, and so I do sales for them, and then I do uh, fundraising and sales uh, as well, part-time down in Los Angeles for the opera, and so, yeah so it's a it's a basically sales is very similar to comedy we're just talking to people and but instead of doing material you're doing like a sales pitch which is like it can be like frustrating it's certainly not as fun as comedy but it's it's how you can pay the bills and so i do work in those
0: industries and so that's how i fill the rest of my time well thanks carl thanks yeah for taking the time
1: yeah thank you uh hopefully it's it's good if there's anything else you need to edit out or follow up questions or anything like that uh Feel free to reach out. People so, want to follow me. I'm car at Carl Powers on Twitter, so I'll have some
0: information about me doing comedy there. To me, Carl is an inspiring example It fits really nicely with why I started this podcast. Because he has a passion and he's going for it. A lot of times, it can be difficult to find a passion, and even harder to make something out of it. I think there are too many people who let fear and other obstacles hold them back from what could otherwise be a really amazing and fulfilling career. And this might sound idealistic but I really think most people would be better off if they took a chance on themselves more often. Carl is a prime example of that, and I have huge respect for what he's attempting, and what other guests on the show have attempted as well. So best of luck, Carl. Find more of Carl at Carl Powers on Twitter. Music for this week's podcast is from Cambrian Explosion, named after the period in evolutionary history that gave rise to a plethora of many celled organisms, such as the exoskeleton wearing arthropods. You can hear the band scuttling around in Portland, Oregon, as well as on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and CEPDX.bandcamp.com. I bought their album The Moon a few months ago, and I find that it's great for helping me focus while I work on stuff like writing, studying, or promoting this podcast. To find more episodes of this podcast, check out Why Try on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any number of other podcast apps, as well as on your computer at nicholaspeel.com, where you can stream episodes as well as check out some of my writing. To help others discover Why Try, like and share Why Try podcast on Facebook, and follow Why Try podcast on Twitter. Thanks for listening.